In uh, the sermon this afternoon, we will reflect on our Lord Jesus as the Anointed One. And uh, there was a moment in Jesus' ministry on earth where he was clearly anointed, where he was declared to be the Anointed One. And of that we read in Matthew 3. We read Matthew chapter 3, and uh, the most important part for our topic this afternoon is the last few verses there. Hear now the Word of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented it, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Our catechism lesson this afternoon is uh, Lord's Day 12, question and answer 31. You can find it on page 527 in the Book of Praise. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit 
to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest, who by the sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. The congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the name of our Savior is Jesus. But we often call him Jesus Christ, or sometimes simply Christ. Well, technically, Christ is not a name, it is a title. So it is really Jesus the Christ. This title is common, commonly used in the New Testament. We find the name Jesus about 900 times, the title Christ about 500 times. Just like the name Jesus is meaningful, it means he saves. The title Christ is also important and meaningful. It was at a crucial moment in Jesus' ministry that his disciple Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Jewish leaders sentenced Jesus to death because he affirmed that he was the Christ, the Son of God. It is clear that the very title Christ carries much weight. In question and answer 31, the Catechism tells us that Christ means anointed. And that is true in a very direct way. We say Christ, but the it's a Greek word, really. Um, English has a funny way of saying the vowels, right? So it was Christos, that's the Greek word, and that literally means anointed. So Christ means anointed. And in this sermon, I want to explore that idea with you. What is the meaning of anointing, and what does it mean that Jesus is the anointed one? So that's the theme for the sermon, the anointed one. We will see the meaning of Jesus' anointing, the event of Jesus' anointing, and the purpose of Jesus' anointing. So first, the meaning of Jesus' anointing. So, um, question for the children. Do you know what that means, anointing? What, what do you do when you anoint someone, or maybe you anoint yourself. Well, it means that you put oil on someone. You apply usually perfumed oil, so it smells nice. And typically, anointing was done by pouring oil on, uh, on your head. Um, sometimes, that is done actually for health reasons, right? Um, 
maybe too much information, but when I had a skin disease as a kid, I had to put olive oil on my head just to make the skin smooth. That's anointing. But that's not the reason why they did that in the Bible. Uh, they would use anointing oil as perfume to smell good in the way that we use deodorant or perfume. Um, you can see this in the Bible, for instance, in Ruth 3, verse 3. Ruth puts oil on her, uh, on herself. You can see this in Matthew 6, verse 17, for instance. Um, in fact, if you would go to a dinner party, a generous host would pour some anointing oil on his guests. And you may remember this from Psalm 23, where it says, The Lord um, prepares a table before me. He anoints my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Right? Good drink, cup overflows, but also a good reception with perfumed oil, because probably you're a bit stinky from walking in the hot sun. So that's anointing. But anointing could also be a symbolic action, marking out a person for a specific task. And then you could say anointing belongs to appointing or ordaining someone. And so the Catechism, when asked what the title Christ means, uses two verbs. It says, because Jesus has been ordained or appointed by the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit. These two belong together. In the Old Testament, there were many examples of people who were anointed. The very first example that you find in the Bible is in Exodus 29 where Aaron and his sons are anointed as priests. They are ordained as priests and then anointed. The um, oil that was used was perfumed and contained a mixture of spices. And the Bible actually tells us what spices they used. Myrrh, cinnamon, cassia, and then something called balsam cane, uh, which we don't know what it is, honestly. Best guess will be something like lemongrass. Anyway, that oil was considered sacred. It belonged to the inventory of the tabernacle and temple, and you were not allowed to imitate it for any other purpose. That oil had a strong and pleasant smell. Um, Psalm 133 talks about the anointing oil for the priest as an analogy for the sweet unity of God's people. Right? How good and how pleasant it is as, uh, when brothers of one house dwell together. It is like the oil poured on Aaron's head that drips down his beard. And I've never found it very appealing to think about oil dripping down a beard. But it was a, it was a pleasant smell and it was a very important symbol. Right? In the anointing you could see that the priests were set apart. And not only see, you could smell it too that the priests were set apart for serving the Lord in a special way. They were consecrated to him. And so when we call Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, we emphasize his consecration, that he was set apart by God for a special holy task. Jesus, in a way, is like Aaron and his sons as priests. 
Later in the Bible, we also hear about anointed kings. The prophet Samuel, for instance, anointed both Saul and David to be kings. Uh, interesting is that both of these anointments there in 1 Samuel happened in secret. That was not normal. The Israelite king was often called the Lord's anointed. The anointing oil marked a man out, not only as king, but especially to be the holy king of God's people who was dedicated to the Lord and acting on the Lord's behalf. That's what his anointing showed. And the meaning of anointing especially becomes clear in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, you know that story. When Samuel came uh, to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and had to anoint a new king, and that new king was David. We read there, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So the anointing with oil is a physical sign, a symbol, of the spiritual anointing with the Holy Spirit. So we have anointed priests, anointed kings, and now there's also anointed prophets in the Bible. The prophet Elijah, for instance, anointed Elisha to be his successor. But then, when Elijah was about to leave, there's this dramatic story in the Bible, right, where a carriage of fire comes down from heaven and takes Elijah up. Just before that, Elisha asked Elijah, can I have a double portion of your spirit? That is the spirit of prophecy, which is really the Holy Spirit himself. Because you see, the anointing with oil of Elisha was only a sign. The anointing with the spirit is the reality that that sign revealed. So all these anointed people had in common their consecration to the Lord. They were set apart for a special task, and in order to perform that task, they received the Spirit of God who gave them wisdom and courage and strength to do His work. The anointed servants of God worked among God's people. The priests administered the sacrament of forgiveness. The kings administered God's justice, and the prophets proclaimed God's word. They embodied God's gracious presence. They were anointed because they were consecrated to that special task. And now our Lord Jesus is the anointed one. Especially the later parts of the Old Testament announce that this special anointed one would come. A single person who brings God's grace and glory to his people in an ultimate, definitive way. And we see that perhaps most clearly in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and so on. 
That's Isaiah 61, talking about someone who is anointed with the Spirit. And now when Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, this is the text that he read, and he applied this prophecy to himself directly. He is the anointed one that was prophesied. In the centuries before Jesus came, the Jewish people, God's people, were eagerly waiting for this promised servant of God. And, and the theologians of that time collected every scrap of prophecy they could find that might apply to this special Savior. And that is why, in Jesus' time, Jews, even the ones with very little education, even a Samaritan woman knew exactly what to expect. They were expecting the Messiah. There's another foreign word. This time it's in Hebrew, Messiah, or in Hebrew it's Meshiach. That also means the anointed one, right? So our word Christ is a translation of the word Messiah. And then we translate it again to English this time, and it is anointed. All means the same thing. They knew to expect the Messiah. When Jesus came and said that he was the Christ, everybody knew what that meant. Just think of that woman at the, at the well in John 4, that Samaritan woman. She figures out that Jesus is a kind of prophet, and she says, um, we are told we are to expect Messiah. And Jesus says to her, the one speaking with you, that is him. So Jesus was ordained by, the, by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to do God's most special work in the world. And that is why he received that hope-giving, glorious title. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So we get to the second point, the event of Jesus' anointing. The Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus' life in a special way from the very moment of his conception. Right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was never without the Holy Spirit, and being the eternal Son of God, he always lived in the most intimate fellowship of the Trinity, one with the Father and the Spirit. But still, there was a special moment when Jesus was publicly anointed with the Holy Spirit. Publicly, because it had to be clear to God's people then and to us today that Jesus has indeed God's approval and that he spoke with authority. And so when did that happen? When was Jesus publicly anointed with the Spirit? Well, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus came to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing, and we read that in Matthew 3. John proclaimed that the kingdom of God was just around the corner. He told people to prepare, to repent of their sins, to show their repentance by being baptized, and he announced that after him would come the great messenger of God that people had hoped for 
When he saw Jesus, he pointed out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the people at that time knew that this special person who was to come would be the Christ. In fact, they asked John, Are you the Christ, or do we have to wait for someone else? But Jesus did not simply say, Sure, I'm the Lamb of God. You're right. Jesus insisted on being baptized. And when he came out of the river, the heaven opened, and something looking like a dove came down onto his head. And that was Jesus' public anointing. The dove represented the Holy Spirit. This powerful sign from heaven was accompanied by a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And uh, earlier in this service we sang Psalm 2, and you may have noticed that uh, this voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism speaks very similar words as Psalm 2 about God's anointed King. You are my son, today I have begotten you, said Psalm 2. This is what the Lord himself declared over Jesus when he was baptized. So you could say that this is the moment when Jesus was anointed and appointed in history. Of course, he had been appointed to be the Savior from eternity. God's plans are eternal. But this is when it became public and official. This man, it showed, is the anointed one. He has an anointment directly from heaven. There was no prophet there pouring oil on his head. It was the Spirit. The heavens were opened and the Spirit came straight down on him. He has received the Holy Spirit in greater measure than anyone before. He is here to proclaim the Word of God to administer his grace and justice and to bring God's salvation. This baptism of Jesus and consecration by the Holy Spirit is a key event in Jesus' life and ministry. One way I know that is because all four Gospels report this. You know, we have four Gospels. They all tell us about the life of Jesus. Some start at his birth, some a little later. They all end with his resurrection. Four times the same story, but there are only a few things that you find mentioned in all four Gospels, and those are the key facts about Jesus' ministry. His baptism with the Holy Spirit is one of those. Some Christian traditions actually set apart a Sunday to commemorate this event, uh, and then it's called the Feast of Theophany, usually celebrated uh, early January, January 6th. And many Protestant churches do not have this holiday. And in fact, we rarely speak, I think, of the event of Jesus' anointing. But I think we are missing out. This is a very important moment in history. This is the moment that Jesus was presented to the world as the Lamb of God, this is when he began his public ministry as the Christ. This is when the Lord himself poured out the Holy Spirit on him as an anointment. 
So Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. But what for? That's the third point, the purpose of Jesus' anointing. Well, in the Old Testament, there were anointed prophets, priests, and kings. There are also a few men in the Old Testament who fulfilled more than one of those roles. They're hard to, to pinpoint. For instance, Moses. Was Moses a prophet, a priest, or a king? It's a little bit of all of them. What about Samuel? Samuel fulfilled all those roles to an extent. Which of these roles did Jesus take? Well, of course, our Lord's ministry is unique. He did things that no prophet and no priest and no king had ever been able to do. But it helps us to, to think uh, about all that Jesus Christ was and still is by putting some labels on parts of Jesus' work. And the Catechism does that when it characterizes Jesus' work as that of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Just keep in mind, we cannot separate those, right? We cannot divide all that Jesus did neatly into those categories. But it is a handy model of thinking. So let's go through that, uh, what the Catechism teaches there. Jesus Christ is our chief prophet and teacher. He tells us everything that we need to know. His three-year ministry was first and foremost a preaching and teaching ministry, proclaiming the kingdom of God. The Catechism says, He fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Like other prophets, but even more so, Prophet Jesus told us God's plan of salvation and the way of salvation and the kind of life that belongs to salvation. Our Lord Jesus is uniquely qualified to do so because, after all, He is the embodiment of the eternal Word of God. He doesn't only speak God's Word, He is God's Word. And that's not just something that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He still does this work as he is present in the church in his word and by his spirit. Through the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, also of this pulpit, Jesus Christ is fulfilling his prophetic office. He is also our only high priest. Like the priests of old, he is a mediator between God's holiness and our sinfulness. At the end of his ministry on earth, Jesus brought the ultimate sacrifice to cover sin. And the Catechism says he brought the, sac the one sacrifice of his body. He became indeed the Lamb of God that carries away the sin of the world he has redeemed us. He has set us free from sin and judgment so that we are now at peace with God. And the Catechism also mentions that Jesus, being our high priest, intercedes for us before the Father. Just to point you at one beautiful example of that, of Jesus interceding as a high priest, 
It's Jesus' prayer in John 17, a very intimate prayer where the Son of God speaks directly to the Father. And we often call this the high priestly prayer. That he is still doing, the catechism says. He is still doing this. He is our advocate with the Father. This morning we read that verse from 1 John 2, right? Um, But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Indeed, the Bible assures us in Romans 8 that Christ Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. That too is the work of a priest. Not only to bring sacrifices for the people, but to plead their, their cause before God. Christ's priestly office continues today to ensure our complete salvation. So Jesus is our chief prophet and teacher. He is our only high priest, but he is also our eternal king. Already during Jesus' time on earth, people recognized him as the son of David. The early church applied to him the words of Psalm 2, verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He is seated at the right hand of God, which means that he is on the throne of heaven as ruler and judge. His task as our king is to govern us by his word and spirit to defend and preserve us by crushing the devil's attempts to undermine our salvation and by keeping his church strong in this hostile world. And it's only a matter of time before his glorious kingship will be revealed to the whole world. He will be, he is and he will be, our king forever. And so to conclude, when we call Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, we emphasize his task and authority. God has appointed him, and he has equipped him to execute the plan of salvation. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the ultimate agent of God in this world. And it would be rebellious and foolish to ignore him. That's the simple message I want to bring you this afternoon. If you realize all that Jesus is, it would be foolish and rebellious to ignore him. God has sent him, and he has not sent anyone else, and he will not send anyone else. Jesus Christ is our chief prophet, our only high priest, and he is our eternal king. He is the Christ, and there will be no other Christs. And as you can see in the next question and answer in the catechism, Christian believers may think of themselves also as anointed ones. But always in an indirect way, we are not Christ's. Rather, we are those who share in Jesus' anointing, and we share in the work he came to do. We share in his work as prophet priest, and king. It is good for us to reflect on the all-encompassing work that Jesus came to do.
There are many things to say about that, what he did, and why it's important for us. Our salvation and our relationship with God have many aspects, but all of it, all lines that you can draw there come together in Jesus as the Anointed One. And so, when we call Him the Christ, we celebrate who He is and what He has done and what He is still doing for us as our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And God's people say, Amen.